Welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here alongside Anthony Pine of RT Sport Online. I'm going to be joined a little bit later on by Graham Gartland and Paul Corey when we'll be reviewing the latest League of Ireland action and a little bit more as well. And you can watch or listen to this podcast on RT.ie, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your pods. But first, it's a big week in the build-up towards the FIFA Women's World Cup for Ireland with the final 23-player squad to be named on Wednesday. It was originally going to be Thursday, but uh, Vera Pau has brought this forward, Anthony. And is there anything to be read into that or is it fairly insignificant in terms of moving it forward 24 hours? I, I think it's just to let the, no- the players know as soon as possible now and not to draw it out. You know, there, there is a big media day planned for Thursday in UCD where all of the selected players for the 23 player squad plus three reserve players also the three backup players are permitted to travel to Australia and they'll be part of the group up until the day before the first match against Australia so up until the 19th of July Uh, so all 26 players will be up and and available for interview and there'll be tons of media and lots of potential around that and I I think it just makes sense probably uh, from her point of view to to give this announcement its own day so it will be uh, revealed tomorrow morning today we're recording this on on Tuesday so it'll be re- revealed I, I would say around 10 10 30 a.m uh, on Wednesday and I think you know at the time of of chatting to you now Raf I'd say the players know I think I think they probably knew yesterday um not an easy process she's spoken about it a few times it's um you know it's it's tough and, and you know they've, they've spent the last two weeks together in camp uh, at Abbottstown and at UCD and you know, there was the game against Zambia last Thursday, which was sort of viewed as like one final chance for people to, to put their hands up, and which some players did. Um, Amber Barrett, it was probably going to make it anyway, but she really rubber-stamped her place uh, with two goals off bench. And Clara Reardon, who was excellent. So um, there's some interesting decisions that have to be made, and we, we will obviously all will be revealed tomorrow, Raph. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not an easy process to go through. But that, that's, as Vera Pell said, this is elite sport. It's tough, but it's just a necessary part of the whole thing, you know. Yeah, very much so. And obviously after the 3-2 win over Zambia, she was talking to Tony O'Donoghue. So let's listen to her because, of course, as you've said, she's talked about this dilemma that, that she's facing. It's very difficult to make these phone calls and all, all, kind of shatter dreams in a sense as well. But it's obviously part of the, the gig as a manager to, to do that. So let's listen to her anyway. It was interesting the way you, you chose your first 11 and then the changes that you made. But Amber Barrett, look what she's done for you again this evening. She's surely in your plans now. <laughs> And I know you can't reveal that tonight, but my goodness. I cannot say that, but um, we've been working together again. Yeah, the, um, yeah, the fact that the way that she responds is, yeah, yeah. And Clara Reardon as well. I mean, the fact that she, you didn't sub her off at, at half time, and she responded to that, that was almost an impetus for her as well. What a great header. And, and Claire has, has come from so far. She had a major injury this season, came back, was first not in the, in the core group. Uh, and the result of her last two games, we brought her in because she just convinced us that she had to be part of it. And look what she's done today. I'm so proud of her. How important was the Scottish Cup final? Obviously, you've been keeping an eye on her. That was crucial. It was because of the Scottish Cup final that I decided that we needed an extra play in because we couldn't miss her out. Another player who didn't go off at halftime, a young player, Abby Larkin. She must be very pleased with her this evening. Yeah, um, she uh, she's a player that needs to trust herself, her own abilities and her own talent and qualities uh, a bit more. And that's what I said to her when she came off. Um, because the second half, she got free 
at halftime, we spoke about it one-on-one, um, -on -one, uh, that she had to forget everybody wants her advisor, but she need, is a player that needs to play from her feelings, from her creativity and what she feels in, in the situation, because that is her strength. And um, the way that she responded was also very, very good. How concerned were you in the first half? Because they were very nervous and very edgy, understandably perhaps considering what was at stake. Yeah, but also the power of uh, of Zambia, the physical power was, yeah, that, that frightened them. Uh, and I, the first words in the dressing room were, if you have fear of failure, you will never succeed. You must have the guts uh, to fail because that's the only way to succeed. And especially Claire Rorden, um, also with her on one-on-one, -on -one, we've, we've discussed that open and you can always turn back if you cannot go forward, but don't go just back as a principal. And she responded also so well on that. Uh, finally, Vera, uh, Courtney Brosnan did very well and made a lot of important saves. You didn't feel like giving any other goalkeeper an opportunity tonight? No, no uh, not because of the other goalkeepers, but we have only three games and she must be ready. It is a gamble. Um, but uh, no guts, no glory. Uh, we must have the guts for that. She needs game time. She must be at her best, best, best at the World Cup. Um, and this game was so crucial to get into game rhythm again. So that is why we decided that we gambled on her, her match rhythm instead of getting, giving more goalkeepers uh, the chance. Okay, so that is Vera Pau there. And we'll also listen to Amber Barrett and Clara Reardon a little bit later on. Um, they were both talking to Tony Donoghue as well. And we'll also discuss the goalkeepers thing because that's actually kind of an interesting situation as well in terms of numbers. But uh, in the lead up to the Zambia game, Anthony, I mean, who were the sort of players would you have said were nailed on beyond the the obvious ones of Katie McCabe, Courtney Brosnan, Louise Quinn, uh, and Denise O'Sullivan? Like outside of that, say that quartet, um, who were who were the others you would have said were like pretty much one foot and a number of toes on the plane? Well, look, I think the fact that uh, the American-based players, Sinead Farley and Marissa Shiva, were included in the initial 31-panel player, but um, they, they were never going to be able to link up until after the Zambia game because of their club commitments in the NWSL. I mean, that, that's a big hint. That suggests that they're uh, both going to be on the plane. Um, look, I don't know. Like The, the real, the, the, the big question marks are around the centre-half situation because if Aoife Mannion is fit, and we still don't know, like we... She did take. Uh, she had the brace taken off her knee yesterday, um, and they were going to sort of survey her recovery uh, after that and have a look at things and, and see how she was progressing. And the, the noises coming out of the camper that they think she'll make it and they expect her to make it, um, but it's not guaranteed either. And also, you have to bear in mind that she hasn't played any football now. She's now going to go into. Uh, I mean, hopefully she's okay to figure against France. And then after that, you've got the warm-up game against Colombia over in Australia. So she won't have had, even if she figures against France, she won't have had a lot of football uh, under her belt going into that game against Australia, where she's going to be tasked with trying to shackle arguably the best striker at the tournament in Sam Kerr. Now, if Aoife Mania, uh is okay, uh, then you're looking at a situation where you know the likes of Diane Caldwell... Uh, Claire O'Reardon, um, you know they're they're scrapping for that other centre half, um, the, the the place's defensive cover there, um, and one of them has to miss out, and you know that this is where it gets really tricky, and you know that spills into midfield. You know Sinead Farley, obviously she's, she's probably going to start against Australia because she's such a talented player. Like, she's only played an hour for Ireland, but she is a really really good player. 
uh, and she'll start like she she will start against Australia. So what happens then? Like does that mean that someone like Rusha Littlejohn could be in trouble? Um, Kira Grant, you know, really solid player with Hearts. Um, and then I think you know I have a piece today, sort of speculating about what the squad what the squad will be. Like Heather Payne has been deployed as a right wing back. Uh, in the last three matches, haven't been a striker throughout uh, Vera Powell's whole reign. Um, and that impacts on the squad because then, you know, the likes of, say, Harriet Scott, um, other fullbacks, like uh, even Anya Gorman, like, does, does that mean they might get squeezed out? Um, so it's very difficult to say who is 100% locked in once you go beyond that core of Katie McCabe, Denise O'Sullivan. Uh, Louise Quinn, Courtney Brosnan, Neve Fatty. Like once you start, there's a there's there's that core that are definitely in, and then there's another sort of outside core that it's up for debate, you know. And I, I get you know if you if you sat down six people uh, who watched this team and covered this team over the last couple of years and asked them to give you your twenty three, I think everybody would have a different twenty three, and that that probably best sums up the situation at the minute. Raf, there's there's uh, there's a few margin calls. And um, so, I mean, I, I had a stab at, at my 23. I included uh, Sophie Whitehouse, the goalkeeper, in as one of the three reserves because I think Powell likes to train with four goalkeepers, but I don't think she'll include four goalkeepers in the 23. Yeah, it does. It feels a little bit impractical because, um, you know, I was listening to the coverage of the Zambia game, uh, or watching it, I mean, um, with Karen Duggan and with uh, Stephanie Roach as well. And they were discussing this issue about the four goalkeepers. And it, it, I mean, the marginal calls you're talking about there in terms of the outfield players, it becomes much, much tighter. And it's actually quite rare to see more than, you know, three goalkeepers called up in any squad. I, I don't think it will happen, but she does like to have, she does like to have four for, for training purposes. So that's why I, I, I think she might bring... Sophie Whitehouse as uh, as one of the reserves. Um, I'd be really surprised if she brings four within the twenty three because you know look really that's just as you say like it's it's making things even harder again for herself. Uh, particularly if one of those players in the twenty three is Eva Mannion, who was not, you know, she's no matter what like you can't say that she's coming in absolutely in peak fitness. Like there's always going to be a slight question mark because she's had terrible. Problems with her knees in the past as well. She's had two ACL injuries, and this particular knee injury is a is a is a ligament issue. She tweaked the ligaments. Now it's not really serious, but again, it's just it's just a reminder like of, of the problems that she's had um, with, with her knees. So, yeah, I, I don't think we'll see four in the squad, but I I wouldn't be amazed if if she does bring another keeper uh, as one of her. Reserves. The three training players, yeah. Yeah, the let's, three training yeah, players, yeah. Yeah, let's listen to Amber Barrett and Claire Reardon. If we're talking about players who definitely put up a hand to uh, or for inclusion, both of them certainly were, and they were both talking to Tony O'Donoghue after the Zambia game where both of them scored. Did you feel you were almost auditioning for a place tonight? Yeah, I think so. Like, to be honest with you, like, there's a lot of pressure on everybody for the next few days, obviously, until we get the squad name, but... To be honest with you, there's always that quiet little bit of confidence around everybody. And look, most important thing was to get, you know, minutes in the legs for a lot of the girls. You've seen people cramping that would never use the cramp. I don't think Megan Conley's ever cramped in her life. And she cramped today. And it, look, it's pre-season for us. A lot of girls had a good break. So, look, I think we're all in a good place going into the going into the campaign. Well, as George Hamilton put it, would you like a window or an aisle seat? Would you like a window or an aisle seat? Oh, I love the aisle. <laughs> I love the aisle. 
Would it be fair to say you might be a bolter in this squad? I mean, Vera was telling us your performance in the Scottish Cup final was a big part of getting into this position. Yeah, well, the most important thing for me when I was assessing myself uh, in the lead up to camp was making sure that I was playing, I was fit, I was healthy, I had good rhythm and confidence and thankfully that brought me here today and I was able to try and bring that onto the into the game. Um, Talk to me about the goal, how did it feel? Oh, I, I don't know how to put it into words, like scoring for your country for the very first time at home in front of these fans. My family are in the crowd. Uh, like massive credit to the team and to Vera for giving me the confidence and, and some credit to Megan Connolly for the quality of the ball absolutely pin perfect and that's what she does for us so I'm just really happy that I was able to contribute tonight um, in, in scoring a goal and you know try my try to do my best in my defensive duties as well what's it going to be like for the next week now until until Vera finally announces the squad what will the nerves be like yeah, well, there'll definitely be nerves, there's no doubt about that, but we have a fantastic group of players here and an amazing staff behind us, so all we can do is continue to keep working hard and push each other in every training sessions to be the best that we can. All right, so that was uh, Clara Reardon there, and before that, Amber Barrett, who scored twice against Zambia, and I think she's pretty safe in terms of picking the aisle seat now. I don't think she's any worries about that. But as you said, Clara Reardon is in the most competitive part of the squad, which is probably th that defensive line uh, among the centre-backs and also the, the wing-backs. Yeah, she is. Um, look, I mean, it's because it's, it's a, a, a squad full of versatile players as well there's lots of um variables and potential scenarios here like um I think Claire O'Reardon, like she's finished the season brilliantly um and Vera Pell was obviously chatting about that the way she's been playing at Celtic and she was player of the match uh, in the Scottish Cup final uh, and she was very strong she was very strong on Thursday night and you know Vera Pell did make a point of Talking to her, uh, talking to the press, uh, chat to Tony about uh, her performance, but also to the to the press afterwards in the uh, in the mix zone. Um, you know, she specifically spoke to Claire Weir in a half time and told her, "Just believe her, trust yourself more. You, you're better than you're showing." Because she'd done okay in the first half, but she was really good in the second half. Uh, and you know, you're thinking, you know, is uh, is is Powell sort of trying to extract something there? Does she see something in her? Um, that maybe might get her on the plane. Um, you know, she won't start unless there's more injuries, but uh, she's shown herself to be very solid and dependable backup. Um, and you got to bear in mind what you're facing here. Well, you know, what Ireland are coming up against, like Australia and Canada uh, are two really excellent teams, like two top teams that will have aspirations of going deep into, into that tournament. And Nigeria, I mean, we, we probably got a good gauge with that match against Zambia. Zambia were very direct, very quick, um, full of players willing to run at you, you know, with the ball and possession ball, full of dribblers. The likes of, um, obviously, Barbara Banda is, is excellent. Um, but Grace Chanda was, was was really good as well. Rachel Kundanangi. Um, Nigeria are similar, except they're better. You know, they're, they're better again, Raf. They're better organised and they, they with outstanding individuals. So, you know, we're going to need players who can stand up to that. And um, that's that's no slight on any of the other defenders that are there. The likes of, you know, Diane Cohen, it's been a brilliant service to, uh, sermon to Ireland. And she won't let anybody down if she is in the panel. It's just, uh, it's just one of those margin calls. And it could come down to who's currently in better form, who's trained particularly well in the last two weeks. I mean, that that's that's why this camp has been so crucially important. Um, Vera Powell was extremely 
methodical in her approach. Like all these players will have heart rate monitors and training to be looking at who is whose fitness levels are look you know in in the best shape. Um, who's going to be able to cope with playing three games in three days, or you know that type of turnover and the jet lag and everything that comes with it. So that's why tomorrow there could be one or two surprises. You know there could be one or two surprises. And yes, that back line is very competitive. Let's not forget that. I mean, I I think Katie McCabe could start left wing back against Australia. I think she could be deployed there because Australia, uh, you're not going to stop Sam Kerr. If she gets service, we're not going to stop her. She will score goals, 100%. Uh, so they have to stop the service. And a lot of their service to care comes from the wide position. So it, it would make sense if you, to use Katie McCabe there. I know she's you know she's a brilliant player and you can play her anywhere. And you, you know that takes her out in the middle of the park. But she's so strong and the threat is so potent on the two wide uh, areas that she might decide it makes more sense to use her out there. Um, so that puts another strain on the people buying Jocelyn to get into that defence. So, look, this will all be debated and, and mulled over as we get closer to that game. But for now, it's 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 a squad issue. Who's going to make the actual squad? And as I said, Raph, I, I know not to sit on the fence here because I did take a stab at picking the squad, but it yeah. is very difficult. It's very difficult. And I probably could have picked three squads, really. Like, it's there's just a few very, very tight margin calls there. Yeah, because uh, your piece, it's D-Day for Ireland, hopefuls, as Vera Pau prepares to name World Cup squad. So that's on rt.ie slash sport. And also for anyone who wants to read it, if they're watching the YouTube version, just go to the description box under the video. You'll find a link to it there. And you've divided it up into sort of, apart from the three goalkeepers, it's like a 7-7-6. Seven, seven, but actually when you kind of drill down, um, there's certain players maybe who are going to be playing in other sections of the field rather than where, the, like Heather Payne, I think, being the uh, the main example. Yeah, and and you know, um, Marissa Shiva and Abby Larkin, I think, are listed among the forwards. You know, they they will, they will, they play basically uh, wide midfield positions. Really, you know, that's they're they're not going to be played through the middle. Um, and you know, as I said, like the likes of Katie McKay could play. She could pop up at left wing back. Uh, Megan Conley could play centre half or centre midfield. So there, there is a lot of fluidity uh, within that, and you know that's obviously going to help Vera Powell as well throughout the tournament. Players who can switch around if if need be and and cover certain positions. Yeah, and obviously the the send off game at Tallah Stadium. It's the sixth of July next week where they take on France, who are generally among uh, the strongest teams at the World Cup. So it'll be a good test for them there. And obviously there'll be it'll be probably less experimental than the Zambia game, given the final squad will have been named. But one final point before I let you go, just in regards to Vera Pau's contract, because that's also been discussed uh, as well. Um, is there an expectation that's going to be done before the World Cup? There is, yeah. I mean, she said as much. Uh, she, you know, she did say we asked her about it um, last week, last Wednesday, and understandably, she said, "Look, the focus is on the World Cup now." She's got a lot on her plate. She, she was preparing for the Zambia game, and she's trying to whittle down that squad. But um, she did again reiterate that she wants to have it done uh, sorted before the World Cup. So I think we'll get white smoke on that. Uh, maybe next week, Raph. You know, obviously this week there's so much going on and. There'll be the squad announcement tomorrow on a big media day on Thursday, and then she'll start preparations for the the France match on Thursday week. So yeah, we 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 might get it next week. But I think it look it, it's it's coming. Um, and it's good news. You know, she's staying on for for another campaign at least, and there's so much to look forward to even beyond the World Cup because they have their first game at the Aviva Stadium, first time the women's team has played the Aviva Stadium in September in the Nations League against Northern Ireland. That's another milestone moment for the players. Um, the Nations League group is winnable. 
you know, it's so I'd be optimistic that Ireland will go well there. And uh, then you're leading into a, a Euros quali- qualification campaign where they'd be really fancied uh, to get through that. So press of a wave, um, all good vibes at the minute. Um, it's going to be you know a tough couple of days for the people who don't make the plane, obviously, uh, because these players have all been part of the journey. They really have. Whoever doesn't make it, they've all been part of the journey. They've all played their part. Um, but once we get through that, it, it will be full steam ahead and excitement will really start to ramp up for this tournament. Yeah, very much. Hectic times be- between now and the 20th of July anyway. But Anthony, thanks a million for your time. Thanks, Raph. All right, now I am joined by Paul Corey and Graham Gartland, and we're going to be reviewing the latest SSC Electricity Men's Premier Division action. But before we do that, uh, just to start off, lads, um, you know, we're not too far off in terms of the the last international window for Stephen Kenny's Ireland. It's not too far back in the rearview mirror, but especially the Greece match, which really was the, the most pivotal of the two games. And Graham, I suppose, first on reflection, almost a couple of weeks on now, I mean, what's your reading of A, that performance and where it leaves um, Stephen Kenny and uh, this team? Um. I, we get asked this question a lot, and even when you're given an opinion, you get asked, are you, are you pro-Kenny or, or, or are you against the, what they're trying to do? And to be honest, it, it's a bit a disingenuous question because you, you want everybody wants Ireland to do well, and we want them to play a, a brand of football doing it. But um, I felt with the, with the Greece game in particular, I think tactically we were a little bit poor in that. We let them dictate the game to us. When you do play your three at the back with, with your wing backs, you have to be willing to slide and engage with full backs high up the pitch and be willing to do that and, and take that little risk sometimes that you might be maybe 1v1 at the back, but you trust your, your central defenders to deal with it. Um, and, and I think when you get pinned back like that, you, that's when they need a little trigger to say, right, one of us needs to go here as in like a full back slide out. And I thought Greece understood that if you if you deepen your fullbacks originally, you can play through them. And then what happens is it gives you a foothold in the game where you can come on. So they deepened them and then went into the wide men and followed it. And that's when they created the overloads. But going into the Gibraltar game, there was a little bit of apprehension as well. And I think that's what's what's probably crept in is that even the games that you think, right, we should win this and we and we should be uh, win it comfortably and win it with a style of play. I think What's come about in the last couple month after these two games is just an apprehension about what to expect from this Ireland squad, and and that's probably not good for for maybe Stephen going forward as a manager because if, if that can spread, um, I don't know if it spread into the squad. I w- I'm not that I wouldn't have any insight into that, but for for fans and people looking in, that apprehension can spread amongst um, the fans, and they're going into Gibraltar game thinking, hope this isn't. Um, a dull drab affair where it's a, a one nil, but they, they they performed really well, and especially the second half, they took it to them. But they should like we should be beating Gibraltar three nil, and we should be beating them comfortably. So, um, winning when you're expecting to win, um, has been a problem for Ireland in the games where we're underdogs and we'll play a certain way, i.e. France and lose one nil, but be happy with the performance. Um, we're trying to move on from that, and I, and I'm not sure if it has. Yeah, and Paul, I mean, before 
before that international window, we had Keith Tracy on the podcast and he had a sort of sense that with Ireland and and it's not really necessarily even Stephen Kenny's Ireland, but there is always a sense of you take one step forward and, you, and it's either one step back or two steps back. And I don't know, is that how you view this group and the current trajectory of the, the squad? I'm not even sure it's how I view it now, Raf. I would have said maybe even 12 months ago when you look back at the performances in the Nations League and in particular Armenia at home, I think there was worrying signs then that we we weren't really kicking on from the initial sort of, um, I guess, bounce that we had from Stephen bringing in new players and trying a new system. And that raised a couple of red flags in my head about how we went about that game and how we were scrambling for a result against an, a poor enough Armenian team. I think the, the issue here is that between that Nations League campaign and, and this European Championships qualifiers, we haven't seen a huge amount of progression and we were always going to be measured on the Greek games. Um, the Gibraltar games, you may as well forget because they were so poor and you can't you can't even take that into the conversation. France and Holland is always going to be an uphill battle, but the Greek games were going to be the ones where we had adequate time to prepare. He had, I guess, the, the guts of his squad and his starting 11 to choose from. Loads of time with the players and we produce a performance like that you you would have to worry. Um, I, I I don't think we can get away from that performance uh, of how Graham has mentioned there, how tactically we were outdone, how there seemed to be such a disconnect between the back five in the middle and then the middle and the front players. When we've had so much time to work on it, I guess what you're expecting is that there's an understanding and there's a game plan that you go out and execute. And if it doesn't go to plan, well, you're still able to flex a little and, and you know pivot and adapt to how the game is played out. So that's, that has, has worried me a bit. I'm starting to wonder, has Stephen brought this as far as he possibly can? Um, I think he's done incredibly well and he was incredibly brave to bring in such a young pool of players to give them the experience. I think I've said it before, it's helped those players in their club career. But have we hit a bit of a ceiling now? And would somebody else be better to take it on to the next step? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not saying that it is time for Stephen to go. But I think particularly in the next window, they're very difficult fixtures, but we need to see some level of performance. Yeah, certainly September, France uh, in Paris, and then the Dutch coming over here. And obviously the Dutch aren't doing particularly well, but they're still they're still the Netherlands. So they're going to be uh, heavy favourites one way or another. But let's turn our attention to the SSC or Christie Men's Premier Division. So <laughs> a, quite a busy weekend. Obviously the teams in Europe had uh, two rounds of action, everybody else just the one. But Bowes and Shamrock Rovers drew two all in the derby on Friday. And then Derry City are back to winning ways with a 2-0 win over Cork City. Dundalk won 2-1 away at Drogheda United in the Loud derby. And then another derby match with Pats beating Shelburne 1-0. Jake Mulraney with a free kick in that. And then UCD, one of the big surprise results of the weekend, beating Sligo Rovers 2-1. And then last night, Monday night, uh, Dundalk and Pats shared the spoils with a one-all draw. Uh, Dundalk down to 10 men as well but still managed to get a point and then Shamrock Rovers in one of the more decisive games in the league um, Rory Gaffney with the winner there on 27 minutes as they beat Derry City but uh, let's start on Derry now in the meantime they've signed a winger called Paul McMullen who scored six and got 12 assists for Dundee in the uh, Scottish Championship and League Cup. He's going to bolster, I suppose, their forward areas. But on the pitch, uh, Graham, I was listening to you on Cole Commentary on LOI TV, and I got a sense that uh, they didn't really lay a glove on Shamrock Rovers until pretty much near the end. Yeah, they played some really good football. I thought they started the game probably the better side. They changed their formation a little bit and tweaked it, and they were clever as well because they probably didn't do that in the warm-up. 
they looked like they were playing a back four in the warm up and then switched it to a back five. Uh, Diallo midfield along with uh, Adam O'Reilly and then they had Brandon Kavanagh and Graydon off each side and they just tucked in a little bit, nearly matching matching up to what they probably thought Rovers were going to play, which was that box in midfield. Um, and it worked for them. They found little spaces. They had shots from distance that, that might have troubled them. Um, but after that, and that this is where when you're tweaking your system to go against the team that has played this system for the last four or five years, eventually they will understand it a little bit more. And that's what it looked like it came to fruition. Rovers started filling in the gaps in terms of stopped getting played through. And then they realised that with Derry maybe matching up in midfield, that the space was to play into the front men. And that's that's where basically they got their joy. They went straight into Gaffney, start wandering. But for all of Derry's good play, and they had a lot of possession, and they, they made a lot of passes in the game, and Brandon Kavanagh was really good on the night. He just had no cutting edge. Um, the final pass wasn't good enough at times in terms of the quality of it. Um it probably had to be really pinpoint for it to be good because of the fact that McGonagall was really well marshaled by Lopez, uh, Cleary and Hoare. Um, so you are looking for some something inspirational to land on his head or his foot. And, the, and I think his movement in the box could have been a little bit better. That their deliveries from set pieces wasn't very troubling at all. Um, so for all their middle, their middle towards... They had great play, but their end their end product wasn't there. And in fairness, it was comfortable for Rovers really. And from a defensive point of view, they didn't have to change the they changed the pace of the game around fifteen minutes into the first half, and then that's took the game away from Derry. And after that, it was only one winner. Yeah, and Derry now seven points behind Shamrock Rovers. And uh, there was another issue that Rory Higgins brought up, Paul, which was in regard to the way the fixtures have been laid out for the teams in Europe. So after the game, he said to go three games in a week before the break and go two weeks without a game and then three games in a week after the break, it's a lot. Um, so either don't give a break or extend the season because the teams in Europe get punished. Um, you, would you sympathise with them on that? It's hard to disagree with it, Raf. Um, it is hard to disagree with it. You know, the league in itself is is 36 games, so... Why do we need a mid-season break in the middle of it? I'm not too sure. I know the players love it, and it's a chance to maybe put the feet up and recharge, and then and then go again to attack the European part of the season. But there is a case that maybe you're better off just letting teams play out during those those two weeks, um, and then to lessen the load as they head into Europe because it can be very challenging for our clubs when they go away to Europe. A lot of them are working off a smaller squad than say the likes of a Shamrock Rovers and trying to use the same crop of players to then produce results both in Europe and the league is a challenge. Now for Rory, he might have, or, or maybe wouldn't be as strong in the point if he didn't have the same amount of injuries as he has at the moment. Like you look at McElhenney, Duffy, Whelan and, and everybody else that's injured at the moment, patching. that, that the patching as well, like that would have, lessen the load on certain players and he maybe could have rotated the squad a bit more but I think there is, I think he does have a case Raf whether it's extending out the season or removing the mid-season break for me it makes sense I know when I was playing in the UK the championship was Tuesday Saturday Tuesday Saturday and it's relentless for the full season you've got um, you know in League 1 what was the Johnson's Paint Trophy or whatever it's called now you've the League Cup you've so many fixtures to contend with and there's no break there so I don't I, I don't really know why we have it. Um, I know it's a chance for players obviously to get away during the summer, but for the European clubs, I'm I'm sure they would probably rather just roll 
through and and have the squad nice and fresh. Paul, yeah. that that I think Rory's point, and you you touched on it there. You find a rhythm where you go your Saturday, Tuesdays. You know your body. You know how to deal with it. Your body gets used to it. You know, I think when it's so stop start for these players, it's the it's the rest period, and then it's a spike. But it, it's not just a spike of one game. It's like right. Spike rest straight into another game, and I, I think that's what catches the players out. And you've seen it. I think Farouja got injured for for Rovers last night, um. But you see that it's the it's the periods of them doing nothing, and then the spike into going straight into three games. It, it that's the load that catches the body out. Do I think players should be able to play three games in a week? Yes, I do. But after coming off a two week rest, it's a lot, and that's the bit when you're trying to play flat out. It's hard to get your body to do that without something failing on you so it's in it's it's like you said it's peaks and tr- instead of it just being that way when you get your body in a rhythm it, you, you can handle games like that but if it's not in the rhythm that's what causes the trouble yeah and you mentioned Faruja there because the injury was just before half time and um, it looked like he was clutching his hamstring Graham but a uh, big blow for Shamrock Rovers especially when you know the European draws have been done now so there's a there's a map ahead to what games are coming up yeah, myself and actually Con Morphy were talking about it on the com last night, Raf, and about what Paul said about him last week about him scoring more goals, and and we touched on it saying for the presence he has, he probably does need to score more goals. But he, he, one of the other issues probably that that Neil's had, and it's these injuries, and and that's the thing that's probably holding him because when he does get in a rich vein of form like he has done this season, he then goes and and re-injures himself again. No, through no fault of his own, but that that's that's one of the things that you're looking at that's maybe stopping him getting really into an Ireland squad. But he's been excellent this season, and they real they will really miss him if he is out uh, for an extended period, especially in Europe, because he brings pace and power. And when you play against the European teams, you need that sometimes, even just to carry up the pitch, even just to get get you know territory in the game at times, and 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 give you a respite in the tough away games. But um. He's been excellent. His goal um, against Bohemians was fantastic. Brilliant header. His desire to get in there. An unbelievable cross from Sean Cavanagh, I have to say. The way he just whips it and it's dipping as it's coming into the box. It's hard to go and attack that as a defender. But Faruja just catches it beautifully on the move. And, um, but he's been he's been fantastic. He's probably been Robert's best player this season, I'd say. Yeah, and in terms of the... Just referencing the cons again, but you, know, you were talking through... Um, Gaffney's goal as well and there was a lot like obviously the, a lot of the focus is him on the ball making that run sort of cross field but there was a lot more going on around it Yeah I, Dunnigan just is he overcarries it and he ends up going into a, into a tunnel really where he, he doesn't have anything in front of him to play and there's no length in the game for him and he, Gaffney stops him throwing him back he probably needs to just hit a diag there and, and, and hope for the best but he, he tries to play a short one and it gets nicked and Gaffney's away. I think boys should foul him. I, I know, and I know people probably don't want to hear that. But the, the cynical side of sport, I, I'd have, I'd have failed him all day long. And uh, but he puts inside, and then McElhenney's. There's two things that happens with Kenny. John Kenny pulls down the side of McElhenney, and he and he catches him that he can't actually go in front the ball. Now, if he is going to go in front the ball, he needs his other defender to come with him because that way Kenny's offside. But because his other defender's deeper, he can't. So that allows Gaffney to just drive into that right in front of the D and he pulls the trigger. 
I, I, at the time, I said I thought Brian Mark could have done better with it. I've watched it back since, and I still think he probably could have done better. I think he could take a, an extra step before he launches into the dive. I, um, I don't think the the shot is hit overly well or overly powerful. Or he, he is cutting down on it. The only probably respite myself and Con were saying that might be on is that he wraps a front post at the front area of the post because that was the only place he could put it and the defenders you're, you're hoping the defenders block the, the, that side of the goal but it goes through Boyce I think and um, into the bottom corner but um, I, I seen Paul was saying that he probably felt um, Brian Marr should have done better on it I think he should have as well but um, yeah, I'm, I'm slow I'm slow Kenny's movement that. kills kills McElhenney like you know yeah, I'm, I'm slow to criticise goalkeepers, but I think when, when you look at it and you freeze it, I know it's much easier to analyse the game when, when you have the time to watch it back. But I just thought Brian was too far over. Um, I thought he gave Rory too much goal to work with in that situation. And potentially if he was half a yard across, he would have he would have gotten to it. But I thought, Graham, looking at the game last night, I thought Johnny Kenny and Rory Gaffney looked really good. I thought it was the best I'd seen Johnny Kenny with his back to goal. If you think back to that chance that he created for Richie Tell, it looks as if he's going to just Beautiful, lay it yeah. Jack Byrne and he rolls McElhenney, I think it was at the time, and he plays in a brilliant reverse pass. And the understanding between the two seems to have, have clicked in recent weeks. And uh, between Friday and Monday night, I thought Roy Gaffney was brilliant. I thought some of his play yesterday, whether it's in wide areas or, or just in that 10 area, and then, of course, his goal, I think he's he's back to the level that we saw, particularly last season. He's at his best when he wanders. I think when you put a striker up beside him and he plays round him and off him, and I spoke to Rory about this, he, he likes that role that, you know, when he's not in the box, there's somebody in there that he can put the ball into and link with and come on to it. And he gets that sort of freedom to go where he likes. You even see that with the goal. He picks it up in, a, in an inside left channel and he drives all the way. But you're right, the link-up play was better from Johnny Kenny. He was better with his back to goal. I agree with you about that. But the game was on for him to do that a lot, Paul, because the way Dirty fronted the midfield, Diallo and Adam O'Reilly just latched on and it allowed them passes into the front men because the gap became too big. They were worried about his pace over the top. So he said, well, right, well, he's probably not that good with his ball with the ball defeat. So we'll give that space to do it. But then obviously his improvement has been drastic. But he was, he was um but in particular, Gaffney had a couple of sloppy spells in the game and then he just pops up with a goal but for some reason he has this thing of no matter what happens before it doesn't get to him he just knows he has the quality to just keep going yeah and it'll be something Jonathan Lafalabi at Bowles would certainly aspire to but he had a brilliant performance in the derby match before that on the Friday and the two-all draw helped spark the comeback so let's listen to Afalabi and then his manager Declan Devine well done on on the point but you could have had a hat-trick as well as that goal yeah yeah uh Second half, we came out and we conceded a goal. Obviously, it wasn't a part of our plans, but it was great character to come back and, and get the two goals back. But yeah, we could have won. Yeah. If what did that do for the belief in the side? Because to be two 0 down against the champions, that's the score that they've beaten you by twice already this season. What what brought the come comeback? Yeah, we we've always had belief in the team. We've got a good group of lads in there, and the first two games even we were disappointed coming back in. So I think uh, yeah, we we put out a great performance today, and we got what we. Uh, what we deserve from it. Should have won it? it? If you look back at the chances, yeah, that we created and the way we played, it's the same in there when we played on Tala. Should have probably had 
a couple of goals there as well, but yeah, no, it was a great performance all around there. And well done to you for man of the match. Well done. Thank you. They're just saying, Declan, how pleased you must have been with Afalabi, player of the match, but that you came back into that game so strongly. Yeah, we're really disappointed. We two down, Tony. I thought we had a lot of chances in the game. Um, but in my game, because I thought we were very much in the ascendancy, I thought we created a lot of opportunities. John Afalabi, when he plays well, is is as good as anything I've ever worked with. He's just so strong and he's such a good player and he's finished, he's brilliant. Um, he's had a few good chances, that, not good chances, he's had chances where he's made them for himself. But a real positive coming back from 2-0 down, but really disappointed that you know we haven't come away with three points because we should be winning that game with the control and the, and the chances that we had. But we'll learn from it, we'll move on. But that's the second time we've come back from 2-0. And it's testimony to the players because they never give up. They work hard, I keep saying it, they work hard every day. And, you know, they have to take joy out of it because it is, it's an important, really important, I said to you before the game, not to lose this game, you know, because they are our biggest rivals, but they are the benchmark in Irish football. And to go toe to toe with them tonight, I'm extremely proud of the players, but disappointed that we found ourselves 2 0. Why, though, were you in danger of losing that game? Because the first half, you probably, you know, on terms of possession and chances, you had that as well. But then to go 2 0 down so quickly? Yeah, look, it's it's something we have to learn from. It's two poor goals. It's 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 nearly similar to the goals we've given in the previous two games. And we've talked about it all week. So that is a disappointing aspect. But it's important that we send our fans away home happy tonight. We can't afford to lose three games on the Spindalem as a, 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 a bohemian team so yes great to get the point having been 2-0 down with so little time left but we have to learn from that and make sure we turn that one point on the three all right so that is Bowles manager Declan Levine and before that was Jonathan Afalabi who Lisa Fallon had picked as player of the match and rightly so as well he um it was one of his more complete performances Paul and it's you know he's shown good moments in terms of his hold-up play but having that kind of complete performance where there's a goal at the end of it and he's actually making a decisive contribution that's something Bowles have been waiting for and probably needs to be a template going forward yeah, it does. And a lot of Bose fans will tell you, Raf, that he's been he's been very good for them all season. A lot of his hold up play, his work rate, his ability to run in behind defenses is is a threat and it has been all season. But I guess what is lacking from his play is is scoring goals. So to be able to put it together on Friday night in a big game against Rose, I'm sure he's absolutely delighted with. First and foremost, it was a brilliant game to watch. It really was. It had a bit of everything, and I thought it was much more like it from a Bowes perspective, I thought there was a bite and I thought there was a tenacity in their game that has probably gone out of their game, I would have said, in recent weeks before the break. And they really went after Rovers. If you think back to the, the first half, I think it was Adam McDonald was on the shoulder of Dylan Watts, won the ball up high and that sort of set the tempo from there. So I'm sure Declan Devine, listening to his, his interview there, I, I can understand why he was so delighted um, with the team's performance. But for Jonathan Afalabi in particular... He just needs to score more goals because he mentioned mm -hmm. that there's so much good to his game. And I'm saying he's an absolute nightmare to play against, but he does need to score more goals. No surprise the way the one went in on Friday night because it was almost like it, it came from instinct. He didn't have a lot of time to think about it. He just kind of swung a leg at it and it was a great finish. It's maybe the ones where he's going through one-on-one -on -one or he has a lot of time and he has a lot of um, space to work with that he's maybe let himself down. But Strikers are, are, are streaky, Raft. He, he could easily go on a, on a run there. He's got a good sort of supply line in behind him. So if he could do that, and if he could maybe just add a few more goals to his game, it could really have a bit of an uptick in, in both performances and their results. Yeah, and on the other hand, uh, Cork City, when they were playing Derry City on Friday, Graham, I mean, if you look at the uh, the chances that they had in the first half, they probably should have been 
you know, yeah. one two nil up, and yes, um, they couldn't really capitalize. Yeah, they were they, they'd more possession as well up in Derry, which you know, from from Cork's point of view, they probably coming away from the game thinking, how did they lose it? Um, they had a lot, they had good chance, especially like you said, especially in the first half. I just think the goal comes at a good time. Obviously, right before half time, um, Kavanagh does really well. The defender needs to be stronger. Like he, Kavanagh, he probably bulked up a little bit in the last probably six months, but he's not that strong to be to be pushing you that far off the ball. And McGonagall this time, this is what I was saying about his movement probably isn't overly clever in the box, but the ball is pinpointed and it's on his head and it's a goal. Um. And that, and then obviously Cork have to come out and try and and they get done on the counter attack later on or another goal. But they've been they've been on a great run of form. Cork, they'll they'll take positives from the performance. Like you said, the goal to the Brandywell and uh, the Roy McBride Stadium and create um, that amount of chances and have more possession than than Derry. Um, it, it's a great performance from them, but one that ultimately doesn't doesn't bring them. Three points. The other, the big shock probably in the weekend though, Paul, is UCD beating Sligo Rovers. And I mean, Sligo are sort of mired in that battle now for the, um, you know, the relegation playoff spot. I don't think there's any, you know, there's no, uh, there's no getting away from that. They're in, it, they're in it now at the moment as we go into the second half of the season. But for UCD, it's a great fillip. Probably a little bit too late in terms of them mounting a, you know, a, a sort of fight back from where they are, but uh, from from the Sligo point of view, it's a uh, you know, it's a it's a real it's a really big blow at a time where they've been in really poor form. Yeah, they've got sucked into that into that sort of bottom half of the table battle now, and the the results before the break were poor. And I would have said they would have targeted this UCD game as maybe as an opportunity to sort of build some form of momentum, but. You only have to look at the goals that they've conceded to understand why they are in that situation. I mean, the first one is is a terrible mix-up and a poor clearance that goes in off the UCD um, winger. And then the second one is is just a basic set-piece where nobody goes and attacks the ball or nobody takes control of a situation and then they find themselves 2-1 down. So it is worrying times for, for Johnny Russell. Um, the results haven't been good. The performances have certainly dipped. And the goals from Max Mata have dried up, Raph, as well. And there's a real sort of correlation between Max Mata's goals drying up and Sligo not picking up wins. I think he's only scored one since the 5th of May. And in that period of time, they've only won one game. So um, they need to find a way of, of him getting back on the score sheet. There was a really good chance he had where if it was sort of two, three months ago, it was, it was a cross into the box. You would have seen him buried. He's just missed a target with it. And they need to find a way of getting the most out of him because he has a real impact on on their results. But um, for Sligo, like the, the expectations of that football club are, are not to be down in the bottom half of the table. It's to be competing for European positions, for going strong with the FAI Cup. And uh, at the moment, they're not showing any real signs of of doing either. But I hope, I hope Johnny Russell gets it together. I, I hope there's a turn in their performances of a lot of time from I thought they were playing some good stuff at the start of the yeah. season, but it's just it's just faded in, in recent weeks, Raf. I've yeah. done two of their live games. One of them was up in Derry um for RTE, and the other one was at, at Shamrock Rovers. And I thought they were excellent. I, I actually thought the pulled rovers around for the first 60 minutes of the game, where and I think Stephen Bradley's come out since and said it was the best performance that they've come up against this season in terms of Again, starting the game, middle third of the game, you are excellent. And then um, I watched them and thought, these are going to be a good side. And if they can keep Max Mata fit and scoring, they would, they would carry that on. But they've just 
really, really dipped. Um, I always worried about them defensively. I think there's a frailty there. And then once that frailty sets in, it, it spreads throughout your group. Then, uh, you know, even if you do score, we mightn't hang on to this. You know, some of the best teams are always built on the back fact that when you score, the rest of the squad know we're, we're really going to win this game because there's clean sheets being kept at the back. And then they know they can have the confidence to go on and get maybe the second and third and kill the game. But they always know that the back door is shut and midfielders and strikers need that security. And I don't think uh, Sligo have that at the moment. Yeah, whereas Pats have kind of shored up a little bit defensively. Obviously, it was enough to to get them back with a bit of magic from Jake Mulraney as well, Graham, in terms of his free kick against Shells, albeit then, you know, where they have a man advantage then against Dundalk and they sort of let that point slip. And they would have been within five points of Shamrock Rovers. And I know we wouldn't be really talking about them in terms of being in a in a title race, even with that. But, um, you know, overall, I suppose, still under John Daly, they seem to be in, you know, in, on the right trajectory. Yeah, I think they are. I think John Daly's done a great job. Um, like you said, if they have shown up defensively and they're missing a lot of their defenders. Um, Joe Redmond is out injured. Um, Gravoski's out as well, I think. So they're doing it where they're probably not his first choice back line. Um, Dean Linus has come in this year and maybe filled the, the goalkeeping gap that they had and he's he's a steady Eddie type of goalkeeper. Moraine's free kick is unbelievable and the view from where they videoed that at the dugout is even better. Um, I mean, that's what he's brought in for, for moments like that. He's, he has become a bit of an impact player for them. And if they can get him performing regularly from the start, I think there's, I think he has a chance. He's somebody I know from Scotland pretty well. But Daly's done a really good job. He's given them a way of playing. He's he's not afraid to change that way of playing or, or move players around if he, if he feels this can tweak the game. And in fairness to him, he's, he's had a lot of experience Um. John, he, he was at Hearts for a long time and he coached over in Scotland quite a lot and then went to Finland with Jonathan Johansson as well. So you can see that experience coming in and he's quite relaxed about the job and knowing what he's about. Um, and in fairness, they are playing well, but in terms of a title challenge, I just you're basically in a field of non-runners at the moment. There's nobody, there's nobody even coming at all to challenge Rovers and I know people say Rovers haven't haven't even got into second gear. They have because they didn't start the season very well. So they had to they had to come up a level from what they did with starting the season. The performances were there, but their um the results weren't. Now the results are coming with the performances and they're just running away. But I just can't see any it's not that I can't see them dropping enough points. I just can't see anybody catching them. Um Derry have lost too many games. I think they're up to seven. Now, if that's right, and to win a league and lose in seven games, nearly not impossible in the in a 36-team league. So, who else is going to challenge? I, I just can't see any anybody at the moment. Yeah, and then Dundalk are within three points of Derry and Pats in, in fourth place and just above Bowes, albeit Bowes of a couple of uh, games in hand, Paul. But um, Hoban's quality made the difference in the derby against Rada, um, where they could have been easily 2-0 down, but Draper hits the post. And then... Um, you know, you'd probably write them off going uh, down to 10 men against Pats. And yet they seem to have whatever form they found just before the break. They've been able to carry it forward in terms of, uh, you know, keeping the points uh, ticking over. Yeah, I thought they were lucky just looking at the highlights of the Jada game. Um, you would have banked on Freddie Draper putting one of his chances away, particularly one that's been squared. He's hit the post. He's also had another one from maybe nine or 10 yards, slight angle. So you can, you can forgive him for missing that one. But 
it, it probably you're right, Raf, in saying that it came down to to Pahu. And for me, he's he's still the best in kind of that 18 yard box that we have in this league. Even the first one, you know, happens very quickly, but the direction that he's able to put on the header is so good away from the goalkeeper. And then even the penalty, like that, that's a bit of a, a pressure spot kick. Like against Drahada away, probably a bit of time to think about it late on in the game, and he just puts it right into the stanchion. And uh, there was no real I guess doubt that he was going to put it away. And and for me, still, when you look at strikers in the in the 18 yard box. I know Freddie Draper's done very well as well for, for Drada this season, but just his instincts and and his ability to put chances away, he's still for me the the best in the league. But yeah, Dundalk had picked up a small bit. They they were definitely fortunate on Friday night. Watched them last night against Pats and kind of flicking between the two games. They were okay. I thought like the pitch really doesn't help. It's it's funny, you know, when you flick between the Rovers game and the Dundalk game, just the difference in how the ball flows and the tempo to the game and even the the stands and, and how they look on, on the telly. Um, but it didn't the help. Commentary, the, the commentary, the commentary as well. Yeah, Yourself and Khan there. Sorry, Paul, <laughs> you're missing a massive vital part of the, the production line there, you know. <laughs> yeah, they, they were okay last night, Raf, and I, I'm sure, I thought the sending off was ridiculous. Um, yeah. I never thought that was a second yellow on Tullock. I thought it was kind of, grappling between the two of them you could have easily booked uh, either player and I know Tullock has probably brought Doyle down in the end but I didn't think it was a yellow card I really didn't it's not as if Doyle was breaking up the other end of the pitch he was heading back towards his own goal but a lapse in concentration from Pats um, lets Dan O'Kelly in and he and he takes it well and you know maybe when they reflect at the end of the season and it comes down to points between Dundalk and Pats whether it be for a European position or for second in the table that might be something that that bodes well for them and maybe just for the togetherness of the group to to come back from a situation where you're not expected to get anything will certainly help um, but they've still got they've still got a long way to go I'd absolutely echo what Graham has said there with regards to kind of who's chasing Rovers you know, consistently inconsistent is all you can say about about kind of those three or four teams below good performances, and then you know they they take one step back and and for Pats as well last night like that's a game they should have gotten out of Oreo with three points. It's a terrible mix up between Lewis, um and Linus. Like Lewis has to clear it, lets them in, and uh, just extends the gap out like a draw. Just only extends the gap between Rovers and the chasing pack. But yeah, there's signs. I would say there's signs with Dundalk that. Maybe performances starting to get a bit better. Graydon's yellow card in the Graydon's yellow card last night as well is something that just infuriated me watching it. And I had, again, Con Morphy had to give me the little. That's enough. But I was, uh, I was just fuming how how a player gets booked for that and then has to go off injured because of the challenge. And he actually had a good two minutes to maybe rethink it. Yeah, I thought, I, thought he, I thought he was putting the yellow card back in his pocket. No, the doy and yeah. I said, fair play to him, well done. A little bit of common sense has prevailed. And then he took it back out. So he was wrong originally, and then he was wrong the second time. And I'm and we're looking at him as an ex-footballer, I'm thinking, well, how have you missed this? How have you got this one so badly wrong that you're booking a, a boy? He hasn't dived. It's a brilliant tackle. It's a it's a bang of his knee right on the quad. Like, where? How else is he meant to fall down from that? <laughs> He's running at pace as well. It's not like it's just ran into him and he can fall backwards. But yeah, I was um, I've calmed down a little bit now. But I was I was fuming watching that and because it just kill you just lose faith in their common sense to make um ordinary decisions. 
and that 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 it just becomes frustrating. Yeah, and speaking of decisions, you mentioned the penalty um, that uh, Hoban um, converted earlier, um, Paul. But I was wondering, what do you think of the awarding of it? Because a lot of Dun- or a lot of Andrade United fans were <laughs> quite unhappy <laughs> from what I saw on social media about it because it looked fairly innocuous. Yeah, I, I thought it was a penalty. I think when uh, I think when two sort of players come across each other, even if you're the attacking player and you slow down, you wait for the contact. I think you're always likely to get the decision. I just thought there was a coming together and there was almost a tangle of legs that I think it was was a O'Kane or when he's when he's dribbling into the box. And I, I think it's a penalty. I can understand why they might feel harshly done by, but if you're an attacking player and you're dribbling towards a box and you feel contact, I mean a lot of time you're encouraged to go down, and a lot of time you'll get those decisions. Yeah, and uh, Graham just on Draw United as well. Obviously, a couple of players returning um from their loans going back to Lincoln City and uh, the, a player that's been mentioned already, Freddie Draper, who's been brilliant this season among the among that those two. I mean, it's a it's a blow for them. Obviously, they'll have to look at uh, finding a way of replacing those goals either <clears> within the squad or whether it's another loan from elsewhere. Yeah, I think he. Not only are they going to miss his goals because, but I I agree with Paul. I I do think he can score more goals if he just concentrates a little bit more on his finishing. Um, but he's an eighteen year old kid, so that will come. But I think it's his presence that he gives them. I think he's the focal point. I think they can play through him. They know will stick at certain times. They gets them up the pitch. His hold-up play is excellent. Uh, when it does go wide, he, he gets himself into the box right down the middle of the goal. Um, he's willing to run behind at times as well. For such a big lad, he, he's probably quicker than you think. You've seen that with the goal he scored in Tala, where it's, it's, a, it's a really good ball down the side and he's onto it and he... Like he pushes Sean Hoare off as well, which shows that he has the strength. So I think when I saw that news, I, 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 yeah, I got worried for Drogheda because for all the endeavour they have and Kevin Doherty's done an unbelievable job and they play, they play with intensity at times. They play with, um, you know, they can pass the ball as good as any team on their day, but they don't mind mixing the game up and, but Draper was the one that allowed them to mix the game up. So if you went and tried to press the midfield, they play into Draper and then they play off that. So yeah, unless they can pull another rabbit out of the hat with somebody like Draper in terms of his presence and what he brings, um, it, it probably is a little a little bit worrying for Drotter because for all the endeavour they have behind the ball, they need somebody uh, down the middle of the pitch that can a score and goals and link the play. Yeah. If Draper does go back to Lincoln, Raff, and he doesn't play games in pre-season and maybe realise that first-team opportunities aren't going to be there from That, for me, is a real good fit for Derry. Um, if you think of the problems that they're having in front of goal, 100%. knows the league, um, has shown already he can score goals, that's somebody that I think Rory Higgins will be looking at and just tracking him over the next couple of weeks. You find out very quickly in pre-season when you're, whether you're in the manager's plans or not. Another loan spell for six months wouldn't be the worst idea. European football playing at the top end of the the league, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that one happen. Yeah, and in the first division, Wexford beat Finn Harps 1-0 on Friday night. Galway United extend their gap at the top after a 4-0 win over Longford Town. Uh, Treaty United won 2-0 away at Lone Town. Bray Wanderers beat Kerry FC 3-2. And then Cove Ramblers with a pretty significant 1-0 win over Waterford. So the gap at the top, Galway, uh, 13 points clear of Waterford. And then there's not much between the chase and pack uh, below them. But... um. 
one other um one other interesting development and this is sort of off the field and it's uh the Mayo News first reported it, that there was approval for the creation of Mayo FC for next season and that was going to be granted by the FAI and it has since been launched and what they're going to be doing Paul is bringing in first uh, teams into some of the national underage leagues before um, having a plan I suppose to go and try and set up a senior team possibly by 2026 or maybe later on but again we've talked a little bit in you know a few months ago about sort of the spread of the game around the country they probably looked at the Kerry FC model and it's going to be interesting to see how this develops yeah and that's exactly it isn't it I'm sure they've looked at, at the Kerry model and thought that maybe that's something that they could replicate up around the the west of Ireland. There's a number of players who I would have played at underage level from from that neck of the woods who were very strong players. David Cawley was one of them, as was Rona Murray. Um, and then there was another couple who maybe just kind of drifted away. And maybe that's because they didn't have that kind of real recognised League of Ireland presence in in Mayo. So, yeah, I listen, guards to be much more educated than myself on this. But I think the further we can reach out, the better the development of the game and keeping people involved and, and develop that talent and see what it is we can get from that region. So yeah, I'm I'm for it. I'm always quite hesitant, Raf, when we start talking about extra teams in the first division um, because I see what is there at the moment, not only in the first division, but also in the Premier Division and the improvements that need to be made. Um, I think when we start extending numbers and then extending out the number of facilities that need to be done, it starts becoming like millions upon millions on top of what already needs to be done. Um, but I'm absolutely for the development of of the underage teams in those in those areas. And if they can get it up and running, if they can replicate something like Kerry have done in the last couple of months, uh, yeah, I'm all for that. Yeah, because it, it ties into something else, Graham, and this is uh, the Shamrock Rovers under 15s. And you can tell us a little, little bit about this going to Amsterdam and beating, obviously, the fabled Ajax 2-1. Um, I think it's just a, a, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, this comes at a time where we've recently been talking about the Ireland under 17s and the development pathways there. And then coupled with the FAI looking for 863 million in terms of facilities. And Johnny Ward had a really good piece in the Sunday Business Post in and around this, tying the two things together. But I, I suppose first on what that under-15s crop did in terms of beating and and like Ajax are synonymous with bringing true youth talent, but then also the challenge of trying to build on things like this. So they're not they're not one-offs. Yeah, 100%. You don't want it to be one-offs. Um, it, it came about through a good, a good friend of mine. So Ajax is a really tough place to go into to, to get a game. Because they get so many requests from clubs that just think, oh, we'd love to go to Ajax. So I I, I wouldn't normally do this, but I called in a, a favour from a really good friend of mine who got in touch with a prominent figure at Ajax and said, listen, this is a really good team. The fact that he had seen or some of our players play with the Ireland under-17s, or the 16s in the, the Shield down in Waterford. And he said, you, you have a good few players in that squad, Graham. The Rovers have. And I says, yeah, I says, we've, we've, we've more coming. So he, he went and said, right, so we got a game. Um, it was brilliant. They were very facilitating. Uh, Ajax, they were really welcoming to us as coaches and all our players. And um, it was a really good game. It, we didn't, we're getting, someone said, well, you just put out the result. Ajax put out the result. It wasn't up to us to do that. They, they were the they were the host, so they put out the result. But it wasn't about that for us. It was about going there and performing um, and, and making the players believe that they could go and perform. 
I don't know how Paul felt as a youngster when I when, when I was playing underage at Ireland and and a team you're coming up against bigger nations. You always had this little bit of a fear factor of can we do this? And and that's something that I I always felt needed to be eliminated from from the psyche of young Irish players. And I think it's starting to happen, but it has you have to challenge them in that environment that they're coming up against a team like Ajax to see right are they able to play at this level. And in fairness, we took them on. Um, we went toe to toe with them. We didn't take a backward step. Um, they were. I, I've since spoke to them um, on another of other number of things. But that was the whole point of it was that we can go over and showcase what we can do, and then it builds that relationship. That hold on a sec, like you know, we we'd like to play as again and further down the line, and we can uh, um, expand the relationship on it, but. In terms of the group of players, um, the effort he put in was fantastic. And like we said, we we, we play their system. They always the Dutch always play four three three. We play their three five two system, and we and we went after them. And and I, and I surprised them a little bit when I spoke to them that they weren't expecting us to play that way. They they, they thought we'd sit off them and let them have the ball and try and counter attack. And then they said when we did get it, we were expansive and let our skillful players have their moments in the game, which they did. And um, it was it was a really really um educational trip for both us as staff and and the players, and I, and I put out something at the weekend saying off the back of uh, Johnny Ward's piece was, and Paul touched on what Mayo, the play players talent doesn't discriminate where it's born it's it it it's born somewhere and it has to be developed and it has to be nurtured and it has to be given an opportunity, and I think if you give good players and good people and hungry players, an opportunity, they'll take it. But unless we really build up the facilities and the infrastructure and the hours, that contact hours that we can get to these kids, you're taking away their chance. You're taking away their chance to be and play at the highest level that they possibly can because we're not investing in them. And and there's loads of other things around the politically that what happens when you invest in football and you invest in sport, all the other metrics come up, physical health, mental health, all that stuff comes around it. But the simple fact is, the top end of our uh, game in this country, our senior team aren't at, a, aren't at a, a level that can compete at the moment. So if we don't fix it at our underage level and try and make it better, we're never going to get there. Because where are they going to come from? Yeah. You understand? So that's, it's, it's, the onus is on us as an, as an organisation, which the FEI and the government, to give a chance to the talented and hungry players in this country. And it's time that they start realising that the talent is there and really invest in it. Yeah, because it was something, Paul, that um, we kind of talked about on last week's podcast, which was, you know, Stephen Kenny sort of had a blueprint of what he wants to do. But it's it, from it, for him, he the hard challenge for him, it's coming from the top down, whereas in any real, you know, in a football nation, it really should be coming from the grassroots up and then the manager sort of at the very, very top end of the pinnacle sort of builds on that. So there is a, you know, there is, there's there's an onus, as uh, as Graham Garton said, in regard to investing at the lower end. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to really, you're only, you're not going to get the fruits really at the top. Yeah, I think it's a flavour of the two, to be honest with you, Raph. I think Stephen Kenny is somebody who's good at, at setting a vision and uh, then you obviously need the foot soldiers who are going to kind of execute on this on a daily basis. And what that requires is investment. I mean, the game and the clubs, particularly the Ireland clubs now that have taken on the underage structures, are crying out for investment. And um, the game itself hasn't changed probably a huge amount since 
when I was playing schoolboy football 20 years ago to how it is today. Yes, the clubs have, but the facilities, a lot of them haven't really changed. And for too long of a period of time, we have stood still while the rest of the football world has moved on. There is now that realisation and there's great people involved in the League of Ireland structures that can absolutely help with this. But a lot of the time, Ralph, that's that's volunteered hours. That's on top of a job. You go anywhere else in Europe, these are full-time academy staff who are working with kids on a daily basis, working around schooling hours and the contact hours that they have are, are just multiples of what our underage systems are able to give Um kids and teenagers. So yeah, we we desperately need investment. The game desperately needs investment. And if you don't, and if you leave it as it is, don't expect then when we come to play Greece in 24, 36, 48 months time that it's going to be any different because there is a there's a recipe and there's kind of a pathway that you can follow from other nations. Even look at what if Eng- what England have done and I know they're working with completely different facilities and completely different uh financial situation, but they revamped the whole national yeah. uh, how, how the game was structured across all, like you wouldn't have said it was broken, but they completely restructured and they've seen amazing results at underage level and at senior level. If we were able to take 5% of that and bring it into our game, what a difference that would make to the development of these kids and getting them to play the likes of Ajax on a more regular basis, getting them into top European clubs and then getting them through to first teams. Yeah, we'll see how, the, obviously, as uh, has been discussed, the FAI sort of review on that was published a few weeks ago and they're looking for 863 million. And given the nature of these type of things, probably it'll be an even bigger figure than that when it actually comes down to uh, uh, implementing something like that. But a final point, Graham, before we go, and it's Robbie Keane being appointed manager of Maccabi Tel Aviv. Now, this was uh, at the start of this week, it was announced and it kind of... <laughs> It was a bit of a, you know, I was a bit blindsided by it because I wasn't expecting it. You know, he's uh, he's obviously that his last position was as assistant to Sam Allardyce as they uh, tried and ultimately weren't able to keep uh, leads in the Premier League. But he's joined in a pretty big club by Israeli standards and, you know, one of the more successful ones. They were third last season. They've got Europa Conference League qualifiers coming up um, next month as well. So it's it's going to be an interesting challenge, one to keep an eye on. Yeah, it was completely left field. Robbie tends to come, these things tend, tend to pop up from at times, but um, I know he's been doing a lot of work with UEFA, so that I I probably think the relationship might have blossomed through that. But yeah, and um, I actually did the other thing to note the the CEO of the of Maccabi as well. Um, he would have been at Blackpool as well. I think he appointed Nick McCarthy, so or was at least okay. involved. So there might be. I'm not sure what the connection is there, but uh, it's an interesting one anyway. Yeah, it is. And it, like again, it's his four steps into management by himself. Um, he probably couldn't have picked the more difficult one in terms of going to Israel and trying to learn a language or, or whatever he has to do to, to 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 deal with a multicultural dressing room. But I think um yeah, it is one to really watch this space. But again, kudos to him for taking for believing in himself and taking on the job and um and you're hoping that it works out from because everybody obviously wants to see Robbie do well. But um, yeah, it's an interesting take from. I mean, like you said, it's one of those that you just have to sit, sit and watch. I wouldn't. Um, I think teams in Israel tend to be a bit trigger happy with their managers as well. So you've seen that. I think with um, we've seen that before with, with previous managers in there. So um, it is. It's uh, interesting. Would be the one word you'd use, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, I think that that brings us to a close uh, for this week's uh, soccer podcast. So, Graham, thanks a million for your time, and also Paul Corey. Cheers, lads.